anything that we can do for you, we'd be happy to, uh, to serve you in any way. Uh, I want to also say real quick, just a happy birthday to Carol Moss because it's her birthday today, I found out. And uh, so, yeah, yep. So we are, we are thankful, uh, thankful for you. And so happy birthday. Hope it's a great day. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to be camped out there in verses 7 through 12 of Matthew chapter 7 this morning. So shortly after Dallas Seminary was founded in 1924, it came to the point of bankruptcy. All the creditors were going to foreclose at noon on a particular day. So that morning, the founders of the school met in the president's office to pray that God would provide. In that prayer meeting was a guy named Harry Ironside. You may have heard of H.A. Ironside before. Uh, When it was his turn to pray, he prayed in his characteristically refreshing manner. Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. While they were praying, a tall Texan came into the business office and said, I just sold two carloads of cattle in Fort Worth. I've been trying to make a business deal go through, and it won't, and I feel that God is compelling me to give this money to the seminary. I don't know if you need it or not, but here's the check. A secretary took the check, and knowing something of the financial seriousness of the hour, went to the door of the prayer meeting and timidly tapped. When she finally got a response, Dr. Lewis Chafer took the check out of her hand, and it was for the exact amount of the debt. When he turned, excuse me, when he looked at the signature, he recognized the name of the cattle rancher. Turning to Dr. Ironside, he said, Harry, God sold the cattle. It's pretty incredible. For the last couple of months, we've been journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. And after today, we will only have three Sundays left in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm excited for where we're going. Uh, I'm not quite ready to, to announce that to you yet, but um, we'll talk about that more probably next week. Um, but I'm excited where we're going after that. But today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 7, specifically verses 7 through 12, where Jesus talks about asking God and also how we respond to those around us. So let's read together from God's Word. You can follow along either in your Bible or on your device or on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good, gift, good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets." This has been the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come, God, I I feel insufficient this morning. But Lord, you are sufficient. God, let my words be few and yours be many. Father, I pray that your word would speak. God, that you would just clear me out of the way. Anything that's just of me my opinion, my reactions, my uh, insecurities. I pray you'd clear that away and that you would speak to your people through your word. God, I trust you. I trust you to accomplish far more than I ever could. God, I lean on you. I lean on the sufficiency of your word that it will do what you send it out to do. It won't return void, but it will accomplish your purpose for it, your will for it, God. I pray you'd reveal yourself to people today. God, if there are those who are among us who've never met you, Jesus, who who don't know what a personal relationship with you is like, who don't understand your payment uh, for their sin at Calvary, I pray that today would be their day of salvation, would be the day they believe, that they trust in you for salvation, Jesus. And God, if there are those of us here who, who see, God, they, we see ourselves in the passage today, we see our sin before us, I pray we'd be quick, quick to repent and to run to you. And I pray for those who are not with us this morning, 
Um, for whatever reason, God, I, I pray you would bring us back together as a church soon. God, that we could celebrate, that we could glorify and magnify your name. And that Dixon would be different because you did a work here, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Now, just to put this passage in its proper context, because it's very important to do. And uh, if we don't, we could go real wonky with this. We could get real sideways real quick. So what I want to do is I want to recap what's happened so far in chapter 7. And if you've missed those messages, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those messages to catch up. But in verses 1 and 2, Jesus covers how we're to respond to the saved, to our brothers and sisters. Then in verses 3 through 5, he talks about our response to ourselves in particular, how we, we need to deal with that. And then in verse 6, he dealt with how we respond to the ungodly. And he'd been dealing with our relationships with other believers, right, first, and then our relationship to ourselves, and then to the ungodly. But then here now in verses 9 through 11, he, re- he addresses our response, our relationship to the Lord. And wrapping up today's passage, he then deals with how we should respond to the world around us, to basically everyone else around us. Lord willing, by the end of the message, you'll have a better understanding of how to respond to the Lord in prayer and how to handle yourselves in relation to your neighbors, those around you. But first, Jesus addresses our relationship to the Lord and he tells his followers, he tells us to ask, to seek, and knock. And so first we're going to look at our relationship to the Lord, specifically as we approach him to ask, to seek, to knock. Now these verses are not meant to be the blank check that they may at first appear to be. Some Christians, some well-meaning Christians, interpret these to be a blank check for whatever you want. Hear me. These verses do not mean that you get anything you want to ask for. There's no naming and claiming anything here. You can't manifest anything because you're not God. I see so many people on social media and different forms of media clinging to what they think are truths, but have either been wrongly taught and and applied or simply have become cliche phrases that might make them feel a little bit better in the moment, but don't really help anyone. Many times I fear we become like the little boy who was saying his bedtime prayers with his mother. He said, Lord, bless mommy and daddy. And God, give me a new bicycle. His mother looked at him and said, God's not deaf, son. The boy replied, I know, mom, but grandma's in the next room and she's hard of hearing. The linguistic connections to other parts of the Sermon on the Mount and this passage suggest that Jesus promised that those who ask, seek, and knock will be invited to enter his kingdom. These, these three commands, to ask, to seek, and to knock, are in the present imperative. Okay, that's their tense, right? And we've talked about present imperative tense in the Bible before, but it indicates that Jesus, what he's actually meaning here is that his followers should be keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, that it's a continual activity of asking, seeking, and knocking. Sinclair Ferguson points out that this passage contains what he calls beggar's logic, and I love that, beggar's logic. It's a broken and destitute person who cannot help themselves going before the gates of the kingdom and continually knocking, asking God, seeking the kingdom. And this person, Jesus promises, will be invited in. What incredible a promise is that? How incredible is it that those who ask, who seek, who knock, that Jesus says they'll be let in? But I think the question we have to ask is what does this look like in the life of a follower of Christ? What does it look like for us to be continually asking and seeking and knocking, seeking the will of God, asking for wisdom? What does that look like in the life of a Christian? Well, Jesus tells us to ask. 
He says to ask. And when he says to ask, it emphasizes our need for an authentic relationship with our God. The fact that we can go straight before the throne of the creator of the universe, that we have access to God, is amazing. And I'm afraid that sometimes we neglect to realize how amazing it is that we can go before the throne of our creator. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, in our place, for our sin, we can enter into the presence of God as Jesus' righteousness. And we can seek God diligently. This isn't a one-time thing. It's a continual, a diligent seeking of asking God, of going before him as the wording of the command suggests. Now that's asking, to be continually asking, but the Greek word for seek indicates uh, a looking for something or a trying to find something. In short, we're looking for that which only God can reveal. We act as foolish beggars when we neglect to go to him in prayer continuously, when we neglect the spiritual discipline of prayer. And I don't know about you, but that's extremely convicting for me. It's like we forget we're just beggars without Christ before God. That we have nothing to offer and, and we are foolish beggars when we neglect that excuse me, spiritual discipline of prayer. In James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. We should be continually asking. Now, what should we ask for? What should we seek? What should we know? You know all, all these things. We're going we're gonna to get into that. But we should seek his will and be confident because we know that he, the Lord, answers our prayers for his will. Look at verse 8. All who call on God as their father get this promise, right? All who call on God get this promise. Verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So all who call on God as their father have this promise. So be confident in him. And that's the second point, that we should be confident that he promises to reveal his will if we ask. Not because of you, but because of him. Not because you ask, but because of him. The one who seeks, finds. God is still the one who allows for this action to take place, and more than allows, he is the one who causes you to seek and find. He's the guide, the map, and the treasure to be found. He's all of it. Christians get weird sometimes. Well, we get weird sometimes over everything, just about, okay? And I think we have to be able to kind of look at ourselves sometimes in our little Christian subculture and just laugh at some of the stuff that we do, okay? And then some of the stuff we should be appalled by, all right? But we get weird sometimes when we start talking about the will of God. We start talking about asking God for his will or seeking the will of God. We get weird about it sometimes. We treat God's will like it's some kind of cosmic hide-and-seek game. Like he's hiding it for us and then just sort of trying to see if we can guess where it is. Like, uh, like that old game of hot and cold you used to play with your, your brothers and sisters, right? You'd hide, hide the ball and then they'd walk around the house and you'd say, you're getting hot, getting warmer, getting cold. Oh, you're ice cold, you're ice cold. And they'd get closer. Oh, you're burning up, you're hot, you're hot. Or like it's some kind of cosmic game of button, button, who's got the button with God's will. That's not how any of this works, brothers and sisters. I don't have time to go real deeply into this point in particular, but if you want to know more about this, I highly, highly recommend to you Kevin DeYoung's little book called Just Do Something. It is on God's will. It is the best treatment of God's will I've read in a very short, practical way that anybody can understand. Bethany and I read that book whenever we have a big decision to make 
because it reminds us of what our responsibility is in following God's will. It also calls us out on some of this cosmic mysticism that Christians fall into. See, we want to make God's will sound more mysterious and mystic than it is, so we get all weird about it. It's like we want to seem more important, but uh, like we want to feel more important about, well, I know what God wants me to do and what God's will, and we make it almost like this, I don't know, more like something out of like a fantasy movie or book than what it says about it in the Word of God. Sometimes we go so far as to claim something is God's will for us, even when there is zero backing for it in Scripture. Look, I've been a pastor for a lot of years. I've seen this. I'm going to get in some trouble right now. People claim God told them something. People will claim that God has told them something because then whether they know it or not, they're basically saying, God told me this, and what they're basically saying to you is, you can't argue with this. God, God told me this, and what they're saying is, you can't tell me that, that I'm wrong. You can't argue with this because then you're actually, they're setting you up. You're actually going against God. I've seen people do this. I've seen it tear churches apart. This isn't supposed to be a subjective guidance that has more to do with your feelings than the truth of the word of God. I understand that you may have been raised or you may have been taught that, but there's so much misunderstanding about the will of God out there. Let me give you an illustration that I've seen as a pastor before, okay? Not necessarily talking about anyone specific or here, but you guys I know have seen this type of thing in your church before as well. And the reason I can say that confidently is because uh, it doesn't just happen in one church. It happens all over the place. Pastors, we talk about these things. So here's an illustration. Someone may tell a pastor, well, God told me to leave this church. Okay. Okay. Let's talk about that. For, let's, just talk, let's, just have a, let's just sit down and have a conversation about that. All right. Let's, let's unpack that for a minute. What, what has got you thinking that? What, what is it that you read, that God spoke to his word to you about, that, that he impressed upon you, okay? But what is it that has you thinking that that's what God wants for you to do? The thing is, generally, that person will have a very hard time finding a place in Scripture in its proper context that would back that up. Many times we find that people just get sideways with someone or something or they don't like what the church is doing or they don't like the color of the carpet, uh, whatever, and that you laugh, okay? You laugh, and, and I said it to be funny, but stranger things have happened in churches. And they get sideways with someone, and so they jump ship because our own preferences or our own desires are not being met. Rather, instead of seeking what God has said about his church and being a part of a local church in his word. Okay, I want you to know I love you. Okay, I love this church. I love you. And I love you. If you came to this church from another church, I love you. And I'm not telling you to leave or anything like that. So please don't. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? All right? But more than likely, God did not tell you to leave your church. Okay? There are good reasons to leave a church, okay? If there's uh, heresy being preached, if it's, they're theologically wrong, if they've gone culturally crazy. I guess there's, there's some really good reasons to leave a church, but more than likely, God did not speak to you and tell you to leave your church. More than likely. I'm even more sure, though, that God did not tell you to specifically stay home and not ever be a part of a local church. Well, how can you say that, Pastor? Well, I can say it confidently because it is God's will for God's children to be part of God's church. And it's here in the Word, the Bible, the inerrant Word, the inspired Word of God, His revelation of Himself to us that we stand on firm. And I can say that because it's here. A guy named Dean and Sarah wrote this, this he wrote this this week, and uh, I read it, and I was like, i got to put that in, that's good. But Dean and Sarah said this, God has a wonderful plan for your life. We've heard that for years, right? God has a wonderful plan for your life. Here's what he says, God has a wonderful plan for your life. It is 
to be faithful to complete the saving and sanctifying work he began in you. That sounds like a wonderful plan. We always keep looking for more. Well, well, how, where would you see that? Where would you see that in Scripture? Well, there's Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Dean and Sarah reminds us, don't spend all of your time looking for a better plan. There is not one that is better than what the Lord has for you. Friends, ordinary faithfulness, ordinary faithfulness, following the God of the Bible, following the commands in the Bible, the things that Jesus says are true of a Christ follower, the things we've been talking about the entire time in the Sermon on the Mount, Ordinary faithfulness is a lofty life goal. It is a worthy life goal to live a life of ordinary faithfulness. You may never lead a revival of millions of people. You may simply have a godly marriage and raise a godly family and be faithful to your local church. And guess what? Based on what I see in the word, that's a good life. I might say that's your best life. To borrow something from a false teacher on TV. Because he's got that all wrong. I need to move on. Because if I'm not careful, (laughs) I'll just stay here and just harangue on that one. And there's good stuff coming up. Jesus sets up a comparison between earthly fathers... And our Heavenly Father sets up this comparison between two fathers. Now some of you, you may immediately reject sort of that idea of the fatherhood of God because your earthly father wasn't very good. And I feel for you. I am sorry. But the point of this is that even earthly fathers who do good things to their kids, your father may have done terrible things to you. But he, and, and, and I'm happy to sit down and talk with you about that. But you may have a hard time with the fatherhood of God um, because you had a bad example of it. But what this passage is doing here is Jesus is setting up and saying, basically, even a, an earthly father does good things for their kids, how much more so your heavenly father would do good things for your kids. So if your earthly father uh, was just a crumb pile, okay, I don't even know where I came up with that phrase. That was just off the top of my head. But if your earthly father was just terrible, um, good news, your heavenly father is perfect. Anyway, that's a freebie there. But a comparison of two fathers. So two points that we need to understand about approaching God in prayer and why it's an important and privileged position to be in. Number one, you are praying to your heavenly father if you are a Christ follower. If you are a true Christian, he is your heavenly father. So no matter what your earthly father was like, you have God as a heavenly father. Romans eight fourteen through 17. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you you understand this? We go from being enemies of God, at war with God in our sin nature, to being adopted into the family of God and given the privilege to go before him, to ask him, to seek him, to knock on the gates of the kingdom and get let in. How does someone go from an enemy of God to being adopted into his family? I've used this illustration before after World War II. We had an enemy, right, in Germany and Japan, right? After World War II, when we sat down to think, we had Thanksgiving dinner, right? We didn't invite the Nazis to Thanksgiving dinner. 
Okay, It's weird for us to think of someone going from an enemy that we're at war with to being part of the family, right? Thanksgiving dinner, you share it with your family. And maybe some close friends. But for the purpose of this illustration, your family. All right, We didn't invite Hitler to Thanksgiving dinner. It's not how we work. That's how God works, though. The scriptures tell us that every one of us is a sinner. Not only do we, not only do we do actively do sin, but we have a very nature of depravity, a core sinfulness. That's in that sin, it separates us from holy God. And God is just, so sin must faith, wrath, and judgment. So he puts all of us right, that, that truth puts all of us right in the bullseye of God's wrath. And the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So something had to die to pay for our sin. The blood of animals was not sufficient. We needed a more perfect and once for all sacrifice. So God, who is just, but is also love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the promised one, the Messiah. God in the flesh, who lived on this earth with no sin in him. He was perfect, and he lived perfectly because we couldn't be perfect. He willingly gave his life on a criminal's cross in our place. He lived the perfect life you couldn't live, and he died the perfect sacrificial death. He absorbed the wrath of God for our sin and died as our substitute in our place. He took your whipping. He took your nails. He took the wrath of God due to you. And in return, you get his righteousness. You get adopted into the family of God. And three days later, he came back from the dead. He rose from the dead, all the way dead to all the way alive. Hallelujah. And all those who hear this All those who hear this message and trust in Jesus alone for salvation, repenting of their sin, believing the good news that that they will have eternal life with Jesus in heaven and we get adopted into the family of God and we can go to him in prayer and know that not only does he hear us as his children, but he answers us as his children. And that, my friends, is incredible. That is incredible. Oh, that we would never become programmatic at this. That this news would not become old news for us, but that it would always remain good news and incredible news and amazing grace. Secondly, your heavenly father is superior to every earthly father. Even the good earthly fathers, the heavenly father is far superior, immeasurably better. Jesus sets up this comparison In verses 9 through 11, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus uses a tactic here. It's an argument called the lesser to greater principle, okay? Where you argue from a lesser thing to a greater thing. And, and, and there's, there's some cultural things here too. Bread, and why do you use bread and a serpent and, you know, and stone and fish? Why do you do it that way? Well, bread back then, may have, uh, some stuff I read said it may have been a small loaf that kind of, a stone would kind of resemble a, that small loaf of bread that you might give a child. And then also the serpent that, that may have been, there was a fish that may have resembled a serpent that, they may have been taught, that he may have been using as an illustration. But the point is, We see how earthly fathers treat their children, the good ones, right? And even though they're evil and mired in sin, they give good things to their children. So how much more will our heavenly father who is perfect and has no evil in him at all, how much better, how much more, how much uh, better will he act towards his children than us earthly fathers who have sinned? How much better is our Heavenly Father? And, and I want to point out something. There's a phrase here, to those who ask him, that completes the thought from verse 7. We ask, just like a child would ask their father for bread. And that earthly father 
doesn't give them a stone, they give them bread. When he asks for a fish, he doesn't give them a snake, he gives them fish. How much better, better, immeasurably more will our Father do and has our Father done for those of us who are his children and ask him? How many times have you asked God as his child, you've asked him something, and what you got and I'm not talking about necessarily material things, okay? But what the answer to your prayer that came was maybe not what you had asked for, but you found eventually was immeasurably better than you could have imagined. And look, the prob- part of the problem is we rely so much on our emotion and what we think and feel instead of what the truth really is. Our Heavenly Father is immeasurably, immeasurably better. And his will, what he wants for us, is really what we need to pray for because what he wants is immeasurably better than what we would plan for ourselves. But we don't like that because it means we have to die to ourselves. Seems like I read that somewhere. Finally, we come to verse 12, which turns to our responsibility toward the world. As people who are trying to live out this whole person righteousness that Jesus has been talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So what is our responsibility toward the world? This is verse 12. We're going to cover that in verse, excuse me, verse 12. It's come, known, come to be known throughout the years as the golden rule. Now it's not called that in scripture. I'm not going to give you a whole oral history of where the name golden rule came from and how it got termed that and coined that. But that's how we're going to refer to this verse is the golden rule because you'll know what I'm talking about, all right? But it's verse 12 in Matthew chapter 7. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them for this is the law and the prophets. Now this verse has an intimate connection with verses 7 through 11 that precede it. It actually has an intimate connection with, with the whole preceding part of chapter 7. In all actuality, we can see a connection back with, again, with the whole of chapter 7, up to this point at least. Jesus has, he's been teaching about judgment, right? I talked about uh, judge or not judge, right? He's been talking about judging. He's been talking about correcting wayward brothers, uh, correcting people. He's been talking about, about how we interact with the ungodly. And now, prayer before moving on to this golden rule verse. But why? Why, why is that all connected? Why is it structured like that? Well, just as we go to the Lord for wisdom in our judgment and in our correction, right? If you're going to go, if you're, you're working on, on a, making a judgment call or correcting someone, you're going to go to the Lord for wisdom in that, for guidance in that. And we find him faithful to give us wisdom and guidance for that. So too, we, need, we will find him faithful to give us guidance and wisdom and strength to do what the principles of his word call us to do. He, he enables us to live in accordance with his will, including doing to others what we would have them do unto us. Prayer puts us, here, here's the thing, prayer that he talks about asking, seeking, and knocking acknowledges that beggar's role we have. Prayer puts us in a posture of humility before God. Ferguson explains it like this. Only the person who sees that he is a beggar before the Lord and has nothing to offer, but has discovered that he is the heir of the grace of God, will be sufficiently set free from self-centeredness of character to put others first and to do to them what he would appreciate receiving from them. So first, we must be in a position of humility before the Lord. We're not going to be in a position to put away self-centeredness and do unto someone else what we want them to do to us if we have not humbled ourselves before the Lord. Recognized our position before the Lord. But let's tackle this, the golden rule. This verse really epitomizes Jesus' teaching of ethics in the Sermon on the Mount. It describes how we should be acting in relation to the world around us toward our neighbors. We act out the golden rule as an act of gratitude and thankfulness and as an act of faith. Now, we, we should mention, or I, I guess I should mention, I'm the one talking, right? Um, there have been other teachers in history who have been credited with teaching something similar to this 
uh, rule, this, this passage. But often, when this has been credited to those other teachers, and you may have heard it this way before, it's usually stated in the negative. Don't do to someone what you don't want them to do to you, or something to that effect. But Jesus here uses a positive wording, and that's important. There's a difference. He uses a positive wording of actively doing to others what you would want them to do to you. This means as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't get off the hook with inactivity. We can't sit there and say, simply say, not doing bad things to people, but instead we must be continually doing the good to others that we want them to do to us. Okay, I know a lot of you grew up and heard, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. This says, you, what would you want them to say to you? You say that to them. You actively are doing something instead of just not doing something. It's not like holding back yourself from just the bad thing. It's an active doing good to that other person. And sometimes that's hard because sometimes that person is your enemy or they've hurt you or they've done something bad against you. And we covered that several weeks ago. Guess what? In the Sermon on the Mount. We don't get off the hook with this. So how do we, how do we kind of flesh that out in, in our lives? Like, what should believers be doing about this? Well, first, believers should be consciously seeking the best interest of others. We should consciously, deliberately, on purpose, be seeking out the best interest of other people. Look, Jesus knew our proclivity towards self-love, self-preservation, seeking advantage of ourselves. Today in our culture, we got this big thing called self-care, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't take care of yourself, okay? But, but, but. There's a lot of this self, 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 and, and actually our whole culture is built around building up the self. Do you know what one of the biggest genres of, of print books, or any kind of books, print or ebooks or whatever, but um, one of the biggest publishing divisions there is, like if you go to Barnes & Noble, one of the, and they still have paper bookstores, uh, if you go there, one of the biggest sections is what? Self-help. I forget the numbers, but it's ridiculous how many self-help books come out every year. Okay, I used to I, I read the numbers once. It was ridiculous. But Jesus knows that we have this proclivity towards self-preservation and seeking our own advantage and self-love. But here, as he has done with other things, he turns that on its head and he sets those instincts that we naturally end up having because of our sin nature, right? He takes those and sets those up as a guide for our treatment of other people. He follows our desire to look after our own interests and now calls his followers to consciously be concerned for the interest of others. In other words, what would I want that person to do to me? Oh, I would want, it, I would want to be built up. I would want to be whatever, right? And he turns it on his head and says, whatever it is that you would think that you would want them to do to you, you should do that to them. It's a different way of looking at other people, of treating other people, and treating the world around us. I really love how Ligon Duncan illustrates this. He said this, apply this rule to your most difficult relationship. Think to yourself, what is your most difficult relationship in life? Do you have a wife, a husband, a parent, a child who has hurt you to the point that you believe that it is beyond repair? And every time that they share yet another small hurt, the pain flows over you like a wave. And the hurt is so intense that you can hardly think straight. You find yourself snapping back in anger or withdrawing into isolation for protection. How is your instinct for looking out for the best interest of others in those circumstances? How about in relationships with people who are very, very different from you? You share nothing in common with them socially, economically, racially. How do you love them? How do you treat them? Does your heart go out to them as your Savior says he wants your heart to go out to them? Do you treat them as your Savior has called upon you to treat them? 
Oh, my friends, a little reflection like that will show us that we have a long way to go in embracing this commandment practically. I love the way he illustrates that. Because it forces us to reflect on those hard relationships in our lives. And how we think about and treat those. Even those who are hard to love. Look, it's no secret. This command is not easy. It's hard. Followers of Jesus, secondly, followers of Jesus should deal with those around us by God's standard of righteousness and not by our own standard of righteousness. What God is calling us to is, is what we call neighbor love. It can be seen clearly in the last six commands of the Ten Commandments, right? Then Moses, he expand, expounds on it in his other writings and in the prophets as well. So our Lord Jesus is calling us, his children, to treat others how we want to be treated, but it is based on this law of neighbor love. And it, the wording of this, the golden rule here in Matthew chapter 7, sounds similar to wording we find elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 39, and I apologize, I don't think I have these on the screen. So, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so that sounds familiar. Here we have Jesus agreeing with himself. And then in Galatians chapter 5 verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Duncan calls the golden rule the active form of the second great commandment. I like that. It's the active form of that second great commandment. We should treat others the way we want to be treated because the way we want to be treated is, of course, the way the law and the prophets said that people should be treated, right? So it's God's standard of righteousness. It's not our own that we're judging them by how we should be treating them. This is yet another reason why I preach the way I do. Because we need the whole counsel of God in every area of our lives. Not just a couple of verses hunt and pecked that seem to prove what we want to do anyway. There are guardrails on the golden rule and it's the law and the prophets. They're like the train tracks we run down. The love you are extending with the golden rule must not contradict the Bible in any way. The golden rule is not subjective there's a road or a track it rides down and it must stay within what the Bible says everywhere else in Scripture. That means that my treatment of someone cannot include approving of something the Bible calls sin. I once heard a pastor say that guardrails on a highway through the mountains are, are there so that if something goes wonky with the car or you fall asleep at the wheel or whatever, you don't careen down the side of the mountain. The guardrails are there to keep you on the road. So also we have the guardrails of Scripture for how we extend this neighbor love to others. The third thing about the golden rule that I want to point out, and this is, uh, this is very important, particularly living in the culture we live in, and that is this, the golden rule is not the gospel. The golden rule is not the gospel. The golden rule does not save you may have, in your personal evangelism, heard someone tell you that they don't go to church, but they keep the golden rule and they believe that that will get them into heaven. But they're dead wrong. Trying to love others with this neighbor love does not save. You can't love someone else enough that you get admitted into heaven. You can't do it. Your sin must be paid for by a blood sacrifice. And the only sacrifice that was sufficient was that of Jesus Christ in your place for your sin on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead proves that God accepted that sacrifice. We're not going to perform this rule, this command, perfectly this side of heaven. So I said it was really hard. That it's very difficult. And Jesus knows that. 
We're not going to perform it perfectly this side of heaven. There was only one person who lived who was capable of keeping the golden rule perfectly. His name is Jesus, and he knows we're going to mess it up because of sin. So we have this standard that we must live by, and we must strive for, trust God for. We have this standard that we are never going to attain here on earth this side of eternity. We're not going to get there. You're not going to get to the point where you perfectly do that because of sin ever at war with us, with our spirit. And here's the other great thing about the golden rule. It shows us our need for the gospel because we can't attain it perfectly on our own, by our own strength. It shows us our need for a perfect Savior because we're marred by sin. When we look at the standard of Jesus for how we live towards the world around us, we see that we mess it up all the time. We sin, and we need a Savior to forgive us of that sin. How different of a message is that? than what we hear every day out in the world. That the Lord calls us to a perfect life, knowing we can't attain the perfect life, but that shows us that we need him. He's the guide, he's the map, and he's the treasure at at the X marks the spot. I'm gonna move towards closing. I'm gonna ask our musicians to join me back up on stage here. But... uh, Our tendency is to judge people in unfair ways, to look only at outward appearances. But God is fully and wholeheartedly loving. He blesses and loves those who look to him. And number one thing he blesses us with is himself. He is the blessing. I heard a pastor once, or read a pastor, who asked one time, if you got to heaven... And you could have all the glories of heaven, everything that was promised about heaven in Scripture. And you could have all of it, but Jesus wasn't there. Would you still want to go? And that's a problem if your answer is yes, because the only reason heaven is heaven is because Jesus is there. That it is eternity worshiping our King, living in eternal his, in light of his glory and his grace, he is the blessing. So this morning I want to reflect on God's goodness. I want to reflect on his past and his present provision for his children. I want us to have confidence in his future provision that he's already made for you as his child. And I want to leave you with the words of Psalm 103 to jumpstart our hearts in praise and thanksgiving for this this glorious provision for those who have trusted Christ. So this is Psalm 103. I'm just going to close with this. It says, of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, so to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. 
and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Lord God, as we come to this time of responding in worship, God, I pray we would rejoice in our hearts over your provision, past, present, and future. God, that you would convict us where we have failed to live out this great commandment, this the second great commandment, the, the golden rule. God, I know I don't do it perfectly. I hardly, if I'm honest, I hardly ever sometimes think about the way I would want someone else to treat me and then treat them in response to that. Too often I'm just reacting to what other people do. Father, forgive me. Humble me before you. That I may reflect on the way that I want to be treated and that I would treat people according to your word and your will. Because that's how I want to be treated. Help us love people. And God, I pray that that love for others, that would be seen and felt by people and understood by people as love and that that would cause them to want to know you, that that would bring us into deep gospel conversations with people at work and at school and at the grocery store and the gas station and wherever we are. And that that would, God, that us loving on people, that would open roads and doors for the gospel where the door may have been closed before. Help us to love your word and your will and to not get crazy about it, but be devoted to being faithful to what the Bible calls us as, calls us to as your children. Help us follow you faithfully. Help me follow you faithfully. And as you reveal your next steps for us, for me personally, for our church, for the, help us to follow you in faith and to trust that, that God, if we're faithful to your word, we're, we're following you. Help us make wise decisions. Help us be wise according to your word. That's my desire. I pray that is everyone's desire here. We love you, Jesus. We bring you praise because you're the only one worthy of worship. This is about you and for you, Jesus. In your holy name I pray, Jesus. Amen.